It was a time when pro wrestling was a pop culture phenomenon. Talk about your songs, talk about John 316. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Pay-per-view quality matches live on free TV every Monday night. Monday, July 6th. Back at the battle between WCW Monday Nitro and WWF Monday Night Raw. It's me, Austin! Oh, son of a bitch! What? It's me, Austin! It was me all along, Austin! This is Reliving the War with Simon Tackler and Nims Azul. You can call this the new world order of wrestling, brother! Welcome, everyone, to the latest edition of Reliving the War, where we go through the Monday Night Wars and, as it says in the tin, relive it. We do it thanks to our great mates at the Grey Wolf Wrestling Network. Check it out, Grey Wolf ENT on all of the socials. My name is Nims Azor and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Simon Tackler. Simon, we had to go through war, if you will, uh, World War Three to be exact, last month and we definitely need something to cleanse the palate, so to speak. Yeah, it's really weird how these WWE shows are stacking up against some of the uh, WCW um, offerings from 1996. While WCW may have had the advantage in terms of a bigger audience at the time and maybe the the hottest storyline with the NWO, if we're talking the big shows, I think WWE has beat them at every turn when it comes to SummerSlam and King of the Ring, and now Survivor Series. I've loved watching this show back. This was a good one. This is a show was- that actually made me cry as a little kid, but watching <laughs> it as an adult, I really enjoy it. It's good. Yeah, Survivor Series 1996 is the one that we're looking at. There are some incredible matches that are on this card, but we'll start off with, from the top, this has got one of the most big-time intros I've ever seen to a pay-per-view because... According to the announcers, the WWE had taken over New York City. And by looking at the footage that they presented to us, they were all over the airwaves because there's highlights of the wrestlers doing radio interviews. There's, there's them with Regis. Shawn Michaels on with Regis. And they show footage of them in Times Square. And the thing I loved about it is we often say how crappy WCW's video intros are. This just was on another level for Survivor Series, wasn't it? Yeah, WWE really showed off. Anytime they had that mainstream access, they put the spotlight on it. And I think it's important because, you know, wrestling, for as big as it has gotten, you still feel that like, oh yeah, I like wrestling. It's still sort of Mm. like this uh, forbidden shame shame type (laughs) of thing. So I think WWE always does a great job of being proud, even if they want to call it sports entertainment or whatever. It's still wrestling. So when they show it off and say, Shawn Michaels was on with Regis, we took over New York City. It makes you proud to be a wrestling fan and a WWE fan. And this was a great video because it also showed, as we mentioned when we saw the preview in the last WWE show, it showed off that they were having the Hall of Fame banquet, as they called it. And we saw little snippets mm-hmm. of that. Uh, we didn't see more than that. It was only at the top of the show, but even that was really cool too. It looked really strange too because it was at like a Marriott hotel and it almost seemed like a wedding party because I think everyone was just 
all the Hall of Day, all of uh, Fame inductees were at the head of the table at the start, like where a bridal party would sit. But it did look very cool. It made it seem like it was one of the biggest weekends that New York City had ever seen. And as always, we got straight into the pay-per-view with Vince McMahon hyping you up so much and an appearance from Jerry the King Lawler in ring gear. He would be performing later on, but it almost started that transition where King, as we know throughout the Attitude Era, became a full-time color commentator. Yeah, absolutely. I think his in-ring run was winding down around this point in terms of the WWE and we'd see him stick to the desk. So we're sort of left with a weird commentary theme for most of the show with JR and Vince, two, you know, pretend, you know, basically two straight men on the call, you know, mm. without really the color guy. Sort of Vince would take it at points, JR would take it at points. I liked it more than I thought I would. I thought they'd cancel each other out, but they take these really subtle pot shots at each other throughout the show. It's not over the top like Gorilla and Bobby or, you know, King and JR or Paul Heyman and JR. It's this really subtle thing where neither guy can really break their, you know, quote unquote character or whatever. It's, it's really good. There's some subtext throughout a lot of their, their sniping. That's fun. And some of it gets really, really nasty as well. But we'll touch on that a little bit oh, later on as also, it pops actually, up. actually, just one more thing on the commentary team, that shot. You know what sh- sh- uh, shocked me? And we haven't really discussed it. Anytime we've seen JR in 96, this is pre-cowboy hat. Oh, yes. It's He's really just weird. Wearing, it's just straight suit. He looks like, 19, uh, he looks like 1993 WCW Jim Ross, uh, which is strange because he's still got the glasses and everything. But he's... Yeah, it's so strange not seeing good old JR like we know him now. Because yeah. you but, think um, we, that is the only JR in WWE, cowboy hat, but it, yep. it wasn't. Yeah. It's either cowboy hat or toga from WrestleMania 9. <laughs> Those are the two that everyone seems to remember. My favorite. <laughs> so we start off with our first match, and this one is a, a Survivor Series style match. It is the British Bulldog and Owen Hart, the WWF Tag Team Champions, Marty Jannetty and Leaf Cassidy, a.k.a. Al Snow, most people would know him as, as the new Rockers. And they are taking on the Godwins and Doug Furness and Phil LaFon. Now, I probably wasn't the only one that sort of went, hmm, interesting choice here for the, for the second team. But for those that might not know, uh, Furness and LaFon a brand new signing to the WWE at the time, but they have applied their trade. And one of the few times where I've actually heard the WWF hype up another company because Jim Ross mentioned they've done stuff in Japan. They've done this and that. And a lot of fans might know them as the Can-Am connection, but uh, they were actually given quite a, um, uh, quite a, uh, I'd like to say, I don't want to say a hero's start because that's definitely later on in one of the other Survivor Series matches, but a lot of hype for something that at the time didn't seem like it deserved a lot, did it? Well, yeah, essentially the spotlight of this match is on them. We've got three established teams in 96 and Furness and LaFon, who sort of it felt like that the WWE was going to put the rocket ship on. You know, it was like Furness and LaFon are the future of tag team wrestling. I've got to say, like, I know they've got this reputation for being great in Japan and you even see flashes of it here, maybe a little bit ahead of their time in their in-ring style, but... Jeez, they're on the face team. These guys are meant to be the good guys. And I couldn't imagine two less likable and less charismatic wrestlers than these two. There is no reason for me to to like them, aside from like, oh, we can do a good suplex or whatever. They were very plain. They were just wearing blue. 
It would just look like your stock standard, you know, pro wrestler number one. And at this point in time, we might, we've mentioned this numerous times, the Godwins, they're still a thing. They are still a thing towards the tail end of 1996. We know that it get, the WWF does get better, but my, oh my, we still had to get a lot of Godwins, especially within the first 10 minutes of this match. It just dragged on, brought the match down as well. I thought so. With so many good wrestlers, like just from a technical standpoint in this match, the Godwins really dragged it down. Like even Marty Jannetty gets to show off, you know, he was, st- he could still go at this point. He, he definitely go, yeah. wasn't past his prime. Um, he was one of the, the highlights for me early in the match, sort of in spite of the Godwins being there. I got to say though, what a crazy feeling it must be for Marty Jannetty on this show. He's in the opening match and Shawn Michaels is in the main event. <laughs> As the WWF champion as well, <laughs> which is, uh, must be, and he's teaming with Al Snow of all people in the, <laughs> as the new rockers. JR also calls him a geek and dumb <laughs> for showboating <laughs> at one point. Like, I get it. You're making fun of the heel, but like, it, was, it just felt nasty from JR. It really did. And there are a lot of snide JR remarks, as I mentioned, and we'll get, we'll mention them as we go along too. But look, once the Godwins and Al Snow sort of exit this match, it does pick up a bit. It improves. In fact, it's almost night and day. The Godwins, once they get eliminated, Al Snow does a bit of here and there. You do forget that he's a competent wrestler. He's not flashy by any means, but once he leaves, all of a sudden, it just seems like this is a completely different match. It kicks up another notch. Yeah, it was almost like this match only existed to really give us the showcase of Furnace and Lafon and Bulldog and Owen. Bulldog and Owen were the WWE's most technically advanced tag team of this era. Like, nobody could touch Bulldog and Owen. So they could hang with Furnace and Lafon. And we get to see a bit of that, which is cool. But again... There is no reason for me to care about these guys aside from JR telling me that one of them's from Oklahoma and he played football, which, Mm. you know, maybe it shows my age. But again, like one thing with modern wrestling, your character can't just be that you're good at wrestling. Like that annoys me so much. They're like, oh yeah, this guy's cool because I don't care. And and the other thing too is the other things that they were sort of talking about... um, Furnace and Lafon was just like, oh, and they've done this, they've done that. He's a all Australia, you know. He's an NCAA. This, it's just all these accomplishments that I have zero interest in. <laughs> and J, uh, Jr. does get shut down by Vince at one point, who says like, oh, that won't get him far in the World Wrestling Federation because That's Vince right. was always like, no, the height of athleticism should be the WWF, you know. Mm. And Bruce Pritchard yeah. talks about it too because yeah, what does it matter if you were good at football in college? Are you good at WWE or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Also, uh, look, they was... call Henry Godwin Hank at one point when he tags in, and I didn't know who they were talking about. I never realized <laughs> they referred to him at Hank at any point. They're like, oh, here I comes f- Hank. And I was like, who? I also forgot to mention, too, that Hillbilly Jim was also part of the entourage here. Like, mm. uh, he, he, he took the Godwins out. Mm. Um, he, he was accompanying them. And yeah, we just need less Godwins. <sighs> I know it's 1996, but... Oh my god! At least we didn't have the smoking guns on this show for you. That's one. That's one thing that we can take care of. We're getting there. We're so close. We're slowly getting there. But look, there was a cool little exchange, uh, but for, um, towards the end of the match. But Furnace and Lafon win, and they do win fairly strongly. Mm. And look, I, I I went in going, I don't care at all about these guys. I left the match going, 
can wrestle still don't care about them <laughs> okay i'm gonna put you on the spot which one's furnace and which one's lafon i could see this is why they <laughs> couldn't tell you whoever that did the my... german suplex at the end <laughs> that was one of them my last note for this match was i still don't know who is furnace or lafon <laughs> 25 because... years later i don't care to look it up because they kept saying every time they referred to him, it was always as the tag, as the tag team. Furnace and Lafon, Furnace and Lafon. And this is JR's full sell. So, mm. you know, this is probably a JR prep project that he got in there. But we are then taken to a vignette um, with Paul Bearer before he had to go into the cage. Two things. Paul Bearer is hilariously comical in like a... Uh, in like a, you know, Rocky and Bullwinkle villain kind of way. Cause he's like, oh, I'm not an animal. I'm not going in the cage. And then mankind just is such a direct contrast with these dark brooding sort of promos there. And it really set up the next match. Well, but what did you think of the little vignette beforehand? I and really close. It was to the actual match. Yeah. I really liked it. And I think this is another thing in rewatching these shows and being older and rewatching everything. Paul Bearer is way funnier than I remembered as a kid. Like, I always thought he was over the top, you know, with the voice and everything. and was always a fan. But I didn't realize how much he's almost taking the piss. Like, Paul Bearer, yeah. especially here when he turned heel again. Like, with The Undertaker, he played it straight in the early 90s. But once he turns here onwards, Paul Bearer is so funny. Yeah. So, the stipulation is Paul Bearer is in a cage and he's suspended above the ring. Um, Undertaker in the previous pay-per-view was buried alive. Uh, he makes his return coming down from the rafters and he's in brand new gear. So much of the JR makes sure to point this out too. And this is a, quite a, a different Undertaker because he's almost very much shifting away from the zombie-like uh, sitting up and the eyes in the back of the head. And he actually does a fair bit of technical wrestling here. Yeah, this was, again, we've, we've been seeing the um, progress of The Undertaker in the shows we've seen. The matches with Mankind are the most important part of that, where he shows off so many different moves, starts to speed things up. This was the next important step, because not only has he lost Paul Bearer, but now he's moving into the style of outfit he'd wear for the late 90s, which was a singlet and pants, not the sort of, uh, I've been dug up in a suit sort yeah. of Undertaker look. Although what's what I didn't remember is that he did it all leather for this show. And I reckon after one night of wrestling in all leather, he was like, no, I'm not doing this. Because well, he kept the right. same look, but it wasn't leather moving forward. You were 100% right there. Because I thought at first, I'm like, I don't remember The Undertaker being in DOA. <laughs> uh, but he did look like... It was a very cool look, but you're right. I think he switched back to spandex very, very quickly mm. after this. We should also mention, too, this is the fourth uh, encounter that Mankind and Undertaker have had. This has been a really good rivalry. You might even say this is the one that sort of... Uh, Mankind-Undertaker has been the workhorse rivalry that's been un the undercurrent of all the pay-per-views. Mankind has actually got a 3-0 win streak against Taker. He got the first match of King of the Ring. SummerSlam at the Boiler Room Brawl, he famously won that. And last month at In Your House, buried The Undertaker alive. But this is a really cool match. A lot of psychology from The Undertaker because we're finally learning. Now Mankind's no longer new to the World Wrestling Federation. We know how deadly the mandible claw is as a move. So we're doing moves to try and neutralize it. 
Yeah, that's right. Undertaker will work on mankind's hand. He had some reversals that were really creative too, like where he would throw mankind out of the ring while he had the claw on. That was what the match was based around. Um, it was a very different match. You could almost say it was kind of weird because they had two gimmick matches previously. Part mm-hmm. of that did almost take me out of it at first. I thought, oh, but they did the boiler room and then buried alive, which was basically a hardcore match. And now they're doing a straight wrestling match. But there was enough of a story in terms of, yeah, the mandible claw being the thing to avoid where they kept it interesting enough. And again, we kept seeing a different version of The Undertaker here. So a very, I think, historically important match for Taker. Also, first time Taker had the black tear under his eye, which he would have for a couple of years in the late 90s. At one point, though, I I think Vince McMahon didn't know what it was or didn't get it. Because JR's like, oh, the Undertaker sporting a, a mark under his eye. And Vince just goes, oh, well, I'm sure both these men have many marks from this battle that they're having. It's like, ah, you missed it. what he meant. It's like, come on, Vince, settle down. Uh, the other thing, it, this match goes all over the place. It spills to the outside a little bit. As you sort of said, Taker looks less like a dug-up zombie, less supernatural. He's more of a wrestler. We see him speed up a little bit. Um, Taker wins. And the, the cage is lowered down uh, with Paul Bearer in it. And my favorite line from JR says, because Paul Bearer is devastated. He's like, oh no, because the Undertaker is going to finally get his hands on the man that betrayed him all those months ago. And take it, and JR, sorry, goes and says the line, it's a good thing he's wearing black pants. Yes. <laughs> I like that. I'm sure he's used that line in like an old shark cage match before too. Like that was the funny thing about this match too. It had a really old school vibe where even though it was Undertaker and Mankind, it was manager in a shark cage. And if the good guy wins, he gets five minutes alone or whatever. So now Taker unfortunately couldn't get those five minutes alone too, because the executioner, he came out and uh, essentially saved Paul Bearer, but he did, ta- he did get taken out by The Undertaker. So it was almost a fairly moot point. But it's funny that you do mention that how it did seem very old school because this seems like one of those pay-per-views where it slowly was delving towards the harder edge of 1997, but it still had the hangovers of 1996 WWF, like Shark Tank matches, plus the Godwins in there. So there's a lot of stuff where the WWF moves forward, but at the same time takes a couple of steps back as well. Yeah, which is a little bit jarring because they're in Madison Square Garden, which always has a stripped down vibe. So when you see, you know, sort of the seriousness and how gritty the show looks, it's sort of, yeah, is dragged down by like, and here's the executioner. You're like, ah, this kind of sucks. (laughs) Um, The ending of the match was weird too, because Mankind's going for the claw, like in the corner and Undertaker just shoves him out of the corner and tombstones him. I thought it was a, a really weird ending, but it was good. And again, I feel like we're going to be talking about these guys having matches for the next couple of years on this show. So we don't have to get bogged down too much. But my, my absolute highlight of the match, and I've got some research. I want to share this with everyone because it's okay. important. At one point, Taker goes for the chokeslam and Vince McMahon says, Undertaker has him by the goozle. I thought goozle was just a thing Taz used to say later on. And I never knew what goozle meant. So I thought, goozle, you know, I'm yeah. finally going to look it up. Goozle is like another word for neck for a turkey. 
Right. And they were calling it like, oh, he's got him by the goozle. Anyway, so then I did some research on it. So supposedly, according to Wikipedia, the single arm choke that precedes a choke slam is known as a goozle. So there you go. Right. And then it gets even crazier. The choke slam was innovated by Paul Heyman for use by the wrestler 911 in ECW. Yep. yep. And then get this. I don't know how legit this is, but we're going to take this as canon. Although one of the earliest accounts of the move dates back to the 19th century, recounting that describes Abraham Lincoln using a technique very similar in description, himself a wrestler in his youth. Abraham Lincoln, inventor of the chokeslam. Wow, there you go. I wonder if uh, Abraham Lincoln also, as he entered a room, had fire shoot out of all four corners. (laughs) (laughs) Abraham Lincoln's got a bit of an Undertaker vibe, though. You know, tall, wears black, got the hat. Dream match that we never got to see. (laughs) But I mean, actually, Undertaker is sort of a 19th century Undertaker. Maybe yeah. he came, he learnt the choke slam from Abraham Lincoln before he was like brought back to life. This this is true. This could be a very strange. Uh, I cannot believe Abraham Lincoln somehow is attributed to uh, the inventor of the choke slam. Yeah. You, you think of all the all the great moves like Luthez, all these <laughs> forefathers of wrestling, and Abraham Lincoln is there. Just I don't send you to hell. <laughs> That's how he Look, freed the, the slaves. He actually choke slammed the opposition you know yeah he he was there with whoever whoever was the general uh, the general of the south uh he then gave him a choke slam and pinned him cane style <laughs> the tombstone where the arms are out like that yeah. <laughs> that was the stipulation if abraham lincoln hits the choke slam the slaves are free so yeah yeah so we all saw and we all know how history panned out so well done abe <laughs> We moved on to another one of these little segments that I am growing to love here, the AOL online chat room, because this one had Furnace and Lafon. Now, this is way before Google, so I would make a joke that said they were probably Googling who the hell are these guys. But the amount of times that not only have the WWF tried to cram AOL's chat room, but WCW doing the CompuServe, you know, where where there's only 1,000 spots, you forget that, and any newer listeners might forget that this is when the internet was new. Like Simon, Simon, you and I, we remember what times were like before we had the internet. So it was very fresh and you can really tell the WWF like, come on, let's get on this, on board this World Wide web thing. Yeah. And what we had here was like AOL professionals doing the typing for Furnace and Lafon. And I don't know if they were real people or hired actors, but they looked like the biggest 90s nerds you would ever see. There was a man and a woman. They were the most nerdiest, like, office space Dilbert or whatever, like, type office nerds. And my only note was Lafon and Furnace with the only people on this show with less personality than them. (laughs) Accurate. Very accurate there. You want to talk about a juxtaposition. You go from the two of the guys that could like that would need a vacuum to suck enough heat there. <laughs> then it goes straight to Sunny. Sunny comes out for reasons is what I've put in my notes, but she joins the commentary team. And the best part is JR is absolutely roasting Vince the entire time. What is going on here? Well, yeah, he just will not let Vince live this down because at one point, like Vince dances with Sunny. And JR just rips into him. Like, it's almost like he hates Vince for liking Sonny. And then JR and Sonny just go at it this whole match. I don't know what was going on, but it got a little bit awkward. It was like, 
oh, they're just mucking around. And then it was like, oh, this is a bit weird. It was because not only you've got basically, uh, you've got JR just, he, his language towards, um, I'll put it this way. If you were a father and JR was talking to your daughter, like he was talking to Sonny, you'd have some very strict words with JR, wouldn't you? Well, he was the one who repeatedly, I think he's done it on multiple shows, said Sonny missed a few trips to the woodshed. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. then, and now he, he, he doesn't back down. He sticks to his guns, even though she's sitting right next to him. And he does not to be let fair up. Though, to be fair, though, Sonny bites back and dishes it back straight out. Like, there's another great one, another great line where, where um, I think because Sonny at this point in time is having a bit of a feud with Sable because mm. Sable's the new, uh, the new girl on the scene, the new WWF diva that they will obviously be riding into the, the millennium with. Uh, over Sonny, who was there throughout the majority of the 90s. And there's a line where essentially Sonny goes and criticizes. We haven't got to the match yet. So the reason that um, Sonny is there is because of the wild man, Mark Merrow, mm. as always. And JR goes and says something along the lines of, yeah, you're right. A woman shouldn't be at ringside, da-da-da. Like, you shouldn't be at ringside. And Sonny's like, I'll have you know that I make my living uh, accompanying men to ringside and instructing them to win championships and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And actually really puts Jared at his place. I think it was that point where, yeah, at the end of that sentence, she says, so why don't you just sit down and shut up chubby or something? And then he's yeah. like, oh, there, there's uh, no need to say that. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> cop that, JR. Get it coming. <laughs> Yeah, Sunny but, was great. Honestly, if she was able to sort of, you know, keep her, you know, personal life in check and all of the controversy around her, she 100% should have been a bigger star than Sable. Correct, correct. She brought she had so the, much more to the table. She had the goodwill of the fans as well. She was, she was essentially the 90s Miss Elizabeth. Like when Miss Elizabeth left WWF, Sonny should have been the person there to take them through all the way. But unfortunately, you know, as you mm. said, personal demons, things like that. But let's she get could to cut the... a promo too, though, which also separates her from, you know, Liz and Sable. But anyway, yeah. she was a fantastic, um, not just a face, but a heel as well. Like here, she's a fan favorite. When she was, uh, when she wanted to be hated, she could be hated very well. Mm. And she managed to fit with every team that she was with. Like somehow, like if you took Elizabeth out from Macho Man and say, put her with, I don't know, <laughs> the smoking guns, it's not going to work. <laughs> no. But somehow Sonny managed to do it. But we'll have a look at Team Triple H. Doc Hendricks interviews them before the match. You've got Crush, Goldust, Triple H, and Jerry Lawler. Now, the entire big thing here is that um, that uh, Mark Henry has is injured. He can't be a part of the match, so they'll they'll name a uh, replacement for him. However, what I thought was very cool with this match is once again. Vince McMahon and Mark Mero must have had some for Vince McMahon was had probably aspirations that Mark Mero was the man that's going to take what we see with Roman Reigns. Now <laughs> that's what Vince McMahon envisioned with Mark Mero because when he makes his entrance, Oh my God, Vince loses his mind. Oh my God. Look at the wild man. He's look at Sable. She's an extraordinary woman. <laughs> like <laughs> <a> was- Pyro. <laughs> He wants to marry Mark Merrow and Sable. Like, he wants to live with them. Vince McMahon loves these people so much. They're his favourite people in the world. 
He wants him around for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Like <laughs> Vince McMahon can't get enough of Mark Merrill and Sable and he lets you know about it. It does borderline on like, yeah, obsessive fan. I think if there was like, you know, WWE All-Stars 2, remember there was like the dream match yep. mode? Vince yeah. McMahon would be pushing for Roman Reigns versus Mark Merrow. <laughs> and there'd be the video package of them cutting promos. He loves him. The way that Mark Merrow, we talk about those little 1996 hang-ons. This is the reminder that we're still in 1996 WWF because having Mark Merrow there, all the pomp and circumstance over him. But the next teammate that comes out for the face team is the stalker. The stalker who Vince calls a consummate professional. Yeah, poor stalker. Barry Windham, like in the 80s, one of the best in-ring workers. Like everyone thought he was going to be the future of wrestling. Had classic matches with Ric Flair, part of the Four Horsemen. You know, some people say his version of the Four Horsemen is the best one. Like he went into the Hall of Fame with him. But Mm -hmm. his peak sort of ends in the late 80s. You know, early 90s, even if you go back and watch some WCW stuff, like Barry Windham's pretty good. But by the mid-90s, he's only in his, like, mid to late 30s, and he is done. Like, he's Incredible. not even 40 here, but he feels like he's a 50-year-old. It's weird. To the, point, to the point, too, that he comes out wearing just a WWF T-shirt, like, just, like, one that... <laughs> it's like someone has said to him, like, you're not going out like that, right? You've got to put a shirt on, man. <laughs> Just put a sh- look. Here's one. It's just so weird to see him come out. Yeah. And on the on the flip side of that, Rocky Maivia makes his debut, and it's so fun watching this movie. Twenty. It's, it's so fun watching this match. Twenty five years later, due to the fact and listening to the commentary, Sonny says he's a future superstar. Jim Ross, a blue chipper. This guy, um, Vince McMahon. He's a third-generation superstar. Like, they are fully in on Rocky Maivia. Yeah, like, Vince almost reaches Mark Mero levels for The Rock here. Mm-hmm. Like, he's like, he could be as good as Mark Mero one day. Um, <laughs> but no, for real, though, like, even as a kid watching this, because they hyped up The Rock, like, I bought into it right away. I'm like, oh, this Rocky Maivia, this you know, they've told us all these great things. Like, he seems cool. We didn't know that his haircut looked dumb and his outfit was dumb. We just thought that's a WWF wrestler that they're telling us is cool. So I know like they try and look back at it and say he was goofy, but when you were a young kid, you didn't get that. Maybe older fans, you know, they turned on him quicker, but yeah, I mean, he was just a young blue chipper and he looked really good in this match too. You could see the potential. Very, very good in this match. He moved for, and I think the fact that, so I should also point out to that Mark Mara announces that Jake Roberts will be in place of Mark Henry. And he brings in Damien and clears the ring, essentially. And and the thing is, I think one of the reasons why The Rock looks so good, because he is getting a real exhibition in this match of his skills. Like, he's athletic. There's an entire sequence with Jerry Lawler where he's... First off, he leaps over uh, Jerry the King Lawler. Mm. He's just so powerful. Jerry Lawler bumps like an absolute champ for him. Like he's just rag dolls and everything like this. It's because, and I think it's because the rock is all athletic and he's all fresh in a ring. That's got gold dust. It's got crush. It's got all these like real slow plodding sort of guys, because I remember watching back as a kid too. I, I thought the rock was great. Or I thought Rocky movie was awesome. Cause look at him. He's doing like, all, I thought he was like a one, two, three kid kind of mold because he was doing like all this high flying sort of stuff. He was athletic. 
yeah, he was very athletic, would do cross bodies, even off the rope. He'd do the, like, honestly, to be a high flyer in, like, WWF up until the late 90s, all you had to do was a leapfrog, a cross body, and a drop kick. And you were like, oh, look at the athleticism. (laughs) Or something off the second rope. (laughs) Simple as that. Yeah, because Brett would do second rope, Austin would, and you're like, yeah, man, what an athlete. But The Rock looked awesome here, and honestly, compared to The Stalker and Jake, like, Rock had no issues looking like the best guy in his team, and Mark Mello. Do you think, too, like, Triple H, as we know, can can wrestle quite well, but aside from The Rock, this, well, aside from Rocky Maivia, this match seemed to be in slow motion. It was slow. It was plodding. There was rest holds. The entire exchange between Triple H and Mark Merrow just seemed to be rest spots a go-go. I was really surprised by this. I thought the, um, the first elimination match was better than this one. But considering who was in this, there's talent there. We've mentioned how Goldust has been in some of the best matches we've seen in 96. Triple H, always solid. Mark Merrow, even surprisingly mm. good. The Rock yeah. is, you know, a great athlete. But yeah, this match, for whatever reason, just drags. It's got its bright spots, especially the end with The Rock getting, you know, the fan favorite win. But yeah, this one was probably the worst match on the show, I thought. It was fun, just, like, historically, it's cool to see The Rock. And The Rock in there with Triple H, I think you forget that. Their first, you know, The Rock's first ever match is against Triple H. Arguably, he's, you know, one of his biggest rival. rivals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As, aside from the rest spots, when it finally gets down to the final three, it's The Rock and Crush and Goldust. And um, that's when it sort of ramps up a little bit. There are some cool moves. Rock really does shine here. And this is the we always forget how good of a wrestler Goldust is. We're seeing it today uh, that he can still go in AEW. But you can tell that like Crush, I think, is well past it. Like This is long. Crush should have just been... Go go to WCW, take your money there, man. Just just leave right now because Crush is done. Crush he's has a really he's got a really weird career because like his start with Demolition is pretty good. It's not as good as the original, but he was a fine addition. He had good matches. The middle section of his career, like Hawaiian Crush, this Crush, oh. DOA Crush, it all sucks. WCW, oh. Brian Adams Crush in like the NWO sucks. But then he had Chronic, where he almost had a resurgence again. His career was bookended by weird bright spots. I reckon that that, um, Hawaiian Crush, though, had its fans at its time. Because when it first came out, like, you'd see people doing that, the hands together (laughs) for the Crush, remember? Yeah. yeah. But at this point in time, he's just washed up. He's done. Just zero Crush, zero care as well. Goldust is at least doing some form of... uh, He's doing... He's at least moving at a pace that's not slow motion here. Crush takes out Goldust and The Rock capitalizes with his original finishing move, which was the running shoulder breaker. And how weird does that look? Such a dumb move, honestly. And Mm. the fact that it's his finisher, like how would that ever be a finisher? I'm pretty sure I didn't even know that was his finisher, but like in Warzone or whichever game he was in first, that was Mm. his finishing move. And I thought it was like just a generic thing. Like, oh, they must not have his real finishing move. Why would you end a match with it anyway? But speaking of bad finishing moves, what's worse? The shoulder breaker or crushes heart punch? Like, that's stupid too. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's it's a silly one. I, I did love, going back to uh, Crush and his finishing moves, I did like that when he and, and um, Brian Clark, formerly uh, Adam Bomb in WWF, when they were chronic, their finisher was just, you know, the double power bomb, but they called it high times because yeah. their tag team name was chronic, obviously, so... Yeah, that was good. I, I don't think any one man has had two worse finishes, though, between the head crush and the heart punch. It was almost <laughs> like, hey, man, we don't trust you doing any moves. Do this. <laughs> just, yeah, just do this. But yeah, I, I've put in my notes here, the match, pretty bad. But seeing the push of the rock is fascinating, especially when you listen to the commentary as well. Mm. And, and hey, the crowd, Madison Square Garden, you know, toughest crowd. If you can get over there, you get over anywhere, blah, blah, blah. They're chanting Rocky at the end. And sure, he has a little dip, but then he comes back with, you know, The Rock in just two years. He wins the WWF title and he's as popular as any wrestler has ever been in just two years. Yeah, correct. So, uh, you know, you can tell that that's one of the cases where he was rocket strapped and maybe you, you probably reckon that that in their mind, they should have, he should have won the title at WWF Survivor Series 97. But mm. in the sense that like, They've pushed him so much. In the next year, he'll be a superstar. But now, obviously, that the course correct. But we then get to our next match, which starts off with a video package for Bret Hart. Now, those who have been listening to Reliving the War would have noticed that Bret Hart is conspicuously absent for the past couple of pay-per-views. Uh, Owen Hart is there, but Stone Cold is really, really on the rise here since King of the Ring 96. In the video package, Bret just looks stale, out of date and a relic of the past where Stone Cold Steve Austin badass yeah really really cool even though their age difference isn't that huge it really felt like this is old this is new this guy is going to change the business this guy's a relic from the past um you know Brett took time off here because he had been in the WWE for a really long time almost 10 years at this point he yeah, needed well, he was time in WrestleMania off. 2, for crying out loud. Like, it's so weird that Brett was there for that long, like through the old era to the new generation. Like, Brett's been a part of it and put his work in, like one of the best ever. But at this point, Brett wanted to wind down, be that living legend, and he requested mm. to work with Austin when he came, came back. And that helped Austin so much too, you know, because if Vince didn't fully believe in Austin, well, when Brett says, I want to work with him, you're going to go with it. So that's what we got here. Great feud, even with Brett really not being there. Austin carried it with the promos. And then this is sort of like, yeah, the, the one that kicks it all off for these two and changes everything, especially for Austin. But Austin cuts a great promo here pre-match too. Where Very much so. He says the line, cliches are cliches and an ass whipping is an ass whipping after <laughs> saying, you know, best there is, best there is, whatever. It gets a huge pop there too. So I think New York were really on board with this guy saying the word ass. They loved it. When Austin makes his entrance too, we've been seeing since... Oh, there is only one thing in in the video package that does stand out. Austin still doesn't have the kick to the gut for the stunner. (laughs) And it all just looks awkward stunners. (laughs) Because the guy isn't fully crouched down. They're sort of standing up and he's got to hold their head. Yeah, pre-kick stunner is weird. Uh, but yeah, like you mentioned, Simon, the, the promo that he does pre-match, absolute fire. The entrance, he's nailed it. He's finally got it. We've finally, he, we've finally reached peak Austin. He's got the proper vest with 
uh, with Stone Cold on one side and, and the other ones. He's got the swagger, everything. This is this this is the Austin that we know and love. He's finally nailed the entrance. I've I put down here shift in the landscape. This is definitely the time because he gets a little bit of a pop. Brett gets a monster pop when Brett comes out, but Austin, like you said, the New York crowd is finally gone. Right, this is the guy that we're going to get behind. Yeah, they they love Austin, and at the same time, like you said, Brett got the huge pop. We can't write off Brett Hart just yet. He goes no. into 97 and has maybe the best year of his career as well. Such a shame the way it ends, obviously. But this promo, even though his heel promos would always be better, especially the anti-American stuff, this promo, I think, highlights that, sure, by the 90s and 80s standard, Brett might not have been the most charismatic or the, you know, the best talker or, quote-unquote, best promo guy or whatever. Compared to today's standard. Bret Hart is awesome. This is a good promo. It's as good as anything you're going to see now. I love the line because Brett's always a little bit poetic too. He yeah. says, uh, Madison Square Garden, it's not a church, but it's holy ground. And then he says, I'm not greedy for money. I'm greedy for respect. Like Brett, every now and then would have these great lines that he would build a promo around. It was short and sweet. And you believe in Bret Hart. And again, like that leads to the huge pop. Like Brett looks like a superstar yeah meanwhile i think it's just austin's anti-authority sort of uh demeanor like he starts off the match they do the face-to-face you know the the something that has been done since hogan v andre like everyone has done this brett v sean the lock up the face-to-face austin does the same thing the difference is as jr would say gives him a bit of creative sign language at the start with the double bird mm. And this is pre this is pre neck injury Austin. So there's a terrific bit of chain wrestling at the start. They're locking up together. They're doing fluid moves. It's a match made in heaven. It's really really good. Some great chain wrestling. We know that Bret Hart is a is a technical master at this. Austin hangs with him. I love yeah. This match is great. I love Steve Austin. I love his brawling stuff. But I think he was a great technical wrestler here, and we see that he can hang with Bret, like you said. The other thing, I think, when you see them in the ring together, you realize, even though Austin was known as a brawler later on, and, you know, he was in there with The Rock and Triple H, Austin isn't a big guy like The Rock and Triple H or The Undertaker. Austin is the same size as Bret Hart. He is that kind of wrestler. He was a technical wrestler. Like, that was his thing. He looked up to Ric Flair, and that's what he wanted to be. And he could showcase that here, especially pre-injury. They do a lot of really good old school hammer locks and wrist locks, sort of that, mm. you know, classic catch as catch can. Small detail from Brett that I love too. And this is why, even though 99% of the time, if you ask me who's the best, I'll say Shawn Michaels, I'll watch a Brett Hart match sometimes and I'll almost be convinced that he could be better because I love the detail here. Anytime Brett's on offense doing a hammer lock or whatever, he ducks his head or he'll hide his head because. If he keeps his head up, Austin can grab him. It's such a small thing. The commentators don't even point it out. But if you're watching it, subconsciously, there's a bit of logic where you're like, oh, yeah, that guy's being defensive. He doesn't want him to stand there. So Brett's not going through the motions. He's, you know, like legit. Oh, I better be defensive and, you know, not leave my guard open. Yeah. If you're watching this intently, exactly. Because to Brett, it was real a bit too real for Brett, but like you said, but the thing is like, it goes back and forth and Austin really, they sort of, they, 
they sort of um they, they play two sort of roles the commentary and jr and and vince are very very good in their roles here because they do play it up like oh do we reckon look at this young upstart austin like austin's been studying bret hart for years he's based his career even before he even got to the wwf he's been watching brett he's seen him and i think that he's got brett's number meanwhile then when it goes the momentum shifts towards uh, Brett's way is like, oh, but Brett is a cagey veteran. He's been doing this for years. He's a former WWF champion. He didn't get there. Like, it's such a good story. It's told really fantastically. And it even spills out to the outside. It gets a bit hardcore. Brett goes through. Well, he doesn't go through the Spanish announce table because it's not gimmicked. But there's brouhaha happening towards the Spanish announce table, which they bring up. And, and it shows the brutal side of... Um, of Stone Cold Steve Austin as well. Because remember, Brett is the guy, he's the in-ring technician. Austin, he's the dirty fighter. He doesn't trust anyone. He'll win at whatever cost. Mm. And it's cool because we see Brett having to hang with him. So even though it starts as Brett's game, which is technical, it then breaks down into a brawl, like you said. And what was interesting too with the commentary, like you said, they tell a great story. When they were trading punches and brawling the first time, Austin ends the first brawl with the stun gun. And they're like, Austin's won round one of this, you know, prize fighting Mm. fight. But then after they go on the outside and come back in, it breaks down into a brawl again. And Brett ends the punches, you know, by knocking Austin down. He then hits his own stun gun. And Vince and JR say, oh, Brett making the comeback. He's won round two. The match then kicks into the next gear, which is each guy thinking they can't pin each other. So they start going for submissions. And that's where mm. the, en- the sort of the ending eventually gets to. I love this match. It's slow, but not boring because it builds and builds and builds. Like this is classic WWE style, old school wrestling. So good. Another thing too, Bret Hart kicks out of the stunner. Mm. Yep. Like Bret kicks out of the stunner, which is something which like, that's the thing. And the funny thing too is like the common, the commentator's, bring this up because they're like stone cold can't win this because he's used he's used all of his tricks brett has outsmarted him so it does as you said they they finally figured out okay we're not going to win this with with pinfalls we're gonna have to go into we're gonna have to dig some stuff out of the uh out of the bag of tricks and one of my favorite things that stone cold does and he did this to even after his net his uh, neck surgery anytime stone cold brought out the million dollar dream because it was a real callback to his time when Ted DiBiase brought him in and when he was the ringmaster. But in, at this point in time, it actually plays into the finish. Yeah, I love it. Austin would get desperate in big matches where it's like, oh, I need to use the clover leap and I need to use the million dollar dream. And he even busts out like a, a bow and arrow submission too. Mm. And him and Brett are going back and forth. Brett goes for the sharpshooter a couple of times. But yeah, the ending, uh, Austin's got the million dollar dream on and Brett goes to the corner, runs up them, sort of backflips and holds Austin down to pin him. And if you watch him, it's not that Brett just happened to flip and Austin was still holding him. Brett is also putting pressure on to, you know, make it look like he's pinning him. The same way he beat Roddy Piper for the Intercontinental title at WrestleMania 8. And I know, I wonder what the perception was at the time. Like, did people say, oh, we've seen that finish before? Because, you know, like, I know from watching it back, okay, yeah, it's a callback mm. to what Brett has, has done. But from a logical standpoint, doesn't it make sense that a wrestler, you know, as technically smart as Brett, 
would know a guy's got me in a standing submission, the corner is there, I can run up it. I don't think it's recycling a finish if you look at it, you know, yeah. from the, the smart fan. No, it's this character knowing how to reverse that move. Why wouldn't he do it? And it plays into Austin's character too, because this is Austin's a guy. We saw when Austin was doing submission moves beforehand or using the ropes for leverage, he will inflict as much pain as is humanly possible as long as he's legally allowed to. Like we'd see him when he was choking Brett with the ropes. He'd wait till it gets to the five count, then stop because I can still choke this guy legally for five. He, he's actually holding on to the submission. JR brings it up. It's because Austin only lost that because he didn't let go of the submission. He kept that in. But at the same time, to give Brett credit, they he also says, well, Austin's learned there is a way to get out of the million-dollar dream. Brett's just taught him there's a way to get out of the million-dollar dream. Because Brett's been around the block. He knows. He's like, well, yeah. my running flip will work again. And it did. You're right, though. You know what? I've never thought about that as many times as I've watched this match. It's Austin being so tenacious he wouldn't let go of the move because you're right. Not only yeah. on the choke did he wait till five, he had him in the Texas Cloverleaf. Brett got to the rope and he waited for five there as well. So he wouldn't yeah. let go of the million dollar dream and it cost him. This match yeah. is genius. It's five stars, seven stars, five whatever. Star. The fact yeah. that people, like I know everyone talks about WrestleMania 13, this is equally as good. It's a different type of match. Sometimes I think I prefer this one. It's perfect. I think I, I think I refer this one because no matter what your whatever sort of um, whatever sort of flavor of match, maybe you like technical wrestling, maybe you just like brawling, maybe you like um, like mankind versus uh, Shawn Michaels spills to the outside. This match literally has everything. It's fantastic. Like you said, Simon, five stars, absolutely five stars. And one cool thing that I did notice at the end after the match was finished. There is a, a sign behind JR and um, between behind JR and Vince. And so Vince, he actually gets a handshake from Brett. Like, like I think it's one of the few times where you see probably I'm guessing maybe uh, Brett and Vince didn't realize the camera was following them because after the match, Vince actually shakes Bret Hart's hand as it's, you know, sort of be like, well done, man. That was really good. But there is a sign behind the commentary table that has just a big pink sign that says heart and soul of the WWF. So heart is H-A-R-T. So heart and soul of the WWF. It's a fan sign, but WWF is actually blurred out. I noticed that <laughs> too. Network. I thought that's crazy. They were going, you know, obviously with the lawsuit and whatever, that they even hmm. blurred a fan sign. Yeah. So that part I thought was pretty funny. But uh, yeah, this is definitely probably the best match that we've seen WWF and WCW in the year so far. Wow. Okay. I don't know. For me, Shawn Michaels and Mankind mind games, but this it really is up there. You, yeah. Mm. You could go either way. Yeah. Sure. Uh, no, Shawn Michaels, Mankind is, is a very good one, but, but that ends just, up, that ends in a screwy finish. This really yeah. ends. So maybe that's different too. That one, HBK and Shawn Michaels ends uh, in a screw in a screwy finish too, and also at the same time, that also has uh, that doesn't have the variety that you've got here and the story that you've got building into this. That's why I reckon mm. this is such a perfect match mm. for '96. But uh, look, both are great matches. Hardly recommend it. This one's definitely a five star classic. We then segue into a short but sweet promo from Sid Vicious. 
Do you reckon this promo was meant to be longer? Because it seemed oddly short, didn't it? I was expecting more too, but they kept it very short. I was like, oh, cool. This will be a funny Sid promo. But there wasn't much to it. It was fine. Um, not the best Sid promo we've seen because he's cut some really good ones. Um, the notice- noticeable thing was he had a backwards baseball cap on. Yes. Because of his curly hair, it was almost hidden. And it, it, it almost looked small. He looked like, you know, when a little kid has a backwards baseball cap on. It was very funny. Oh, man. It's funny as it's just it's so strange because it was only towards the end of the promo where the camera moves down a bit I'm like what's that on his head oh my god he's wearing a hat i thought he had it's... a bandage on at the start i thought oh is that a storyline thing but no it was just his white hat no nah, just his white baseball hat um uh, then for some reason captain lou albano comes out of the crowd and that was just a weird i don't know what, what happened there what was going on there i don't know he just... did a lap of the ring and then sat down and we never saw him again mm. It was just, as I said, he was out for reasons, and that was that. But mm. uh, then we get to our next match, which is uh, Farouk, Team Nation. He gets a live entrance too, and I'm not talking this. If you if you're thinking of like Lemmy and Motorhead playing Triple H out, or you know Limp Biscuit at um, at WrestleMania 19, this is not one of those performances. It's just Farouk coming out with someone singing along to the Nation of Domination theme, performing it live, which is odd to say the least oh yeah they're the nation of domination members who are lost in time because pre-rock d-lo godfather mark henry lineup the nation of domination was basically farouk clarence mason and i forget their name i know it's pg-13 as a tag team but it's like wolfie d and someone they were the two rappers and terrible terrible stuff but honestly Farouk being in this mode is a lot better than what we saw a couple of months ago in his blue outfit. Like, thank God we're getting real Farouk now. Yeah. Also, as a side note, it's weird watching that Farouk in uh, 1996 Farouk, watching it in 2020. Very strange, especially the way the state of the world is right now. Oh, absolutely. This Farouk being a heel just feels like kind of dirty, but it's yeah. not good. <laughs> Yeah, early nation of domination watching through the eyes of uh, 2020 is just, it, it's it's not good to put the least. But uh, another thing that's definitely not good for completely different reasons, Rick Bogner as fake Razor. Oh my God. And the best part is JR doing his absolute best <laughs> to sell. It's like, what are you talking about? This guy, he's, he's, he's younger, he's faster, he's leaner than the old guy. And Rick Bogner does not look in shape as well. I have the same notes. I just had secondhand embarrassment for JR. I'm like, <laughs> I hope he's not serious. I hope like he was just really in character because yeah, he's more athletic. He's better looking than the other guy. I am sorry. Rick Bogner is not better looking than Scott Hall. <laughs> Even <laughs> WCW past his prime Scott Hall looked like a million bucks compared to this guy. Like I just, you know, it was so cringy. It is so bad, too. It is just horrible watching him do the motions. It's like watching someone cosplaying. Wait, no, no. It is watching someone <laughs> cosplaying. <laughs> JR even asks, he goes, oh, why are the crowd booing? This man has uh, as much right as anyone to be called Razor Ramon. It's like, shut up. Shut idiot. up, like, It was yeah, so annoying. It is the worst part because you're right. Because he, JR honestly sounds like, I can't believe they're booing this man. It's like, JR, first off, you know very well why they're booing this man. No one is that stupid. 
<laughs> it was insane. Uh, um, the other great part about this heel team, though, because, yeah, it's Farouk, it's fake Razor, it's fake Diesel, of course, Glenn Jacobs. And then the on the other team, Yokozuna. Poor Yoko coming through the Madison Square Garden entrance, which is the uh, classic thin entrance. The crowd is right there. Did you see one of the crowd members grab Yoko's boob and wiggle it? <laughs> no, I must have missed that. Me and my brother have laughed about this for 25 years. We're like, remember when that guy shook Yoko's boob? <laughs> it's just terrible. You shouldn't do that to any wrestler. But, oh, it's a, such a weird sight. Someone literally just grabs a hand. Grabs it and grabs a, uh, grabs a handful and just goes to town. But it's, that guy's it's lucky also- Yoko didn't just... Oh, just shoot, yeah. fight, knock him out. But sadly, too, Yoko does not look in a good shape. Oh, too. This so is big. the bad, beardy sort of. Uh, <laughs> he's he's just. This is long past the days yeah. of WWF champion Yokozuna. Even tag team with Owen Hart, Yokozuna. Yoko just looks in a horrible state right now. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, a couple of years later, we then sadly passed. But yeah, he's just an absolute mess. Um, Vader and Vader also, no, Jim Cornette also comes out too. He joins the team on commentary. And one of the best things is seeing his reaction when Flash Funk comes out. Jay, um, Jim Cornette is pretty great on commentary here. Like, I hated Jim Cornette so much as a kid, but watching it back, it's very funny. I get it now. But he keeps pretending like he doesn't know who Flash Funk is yeah, at all. He's like, no. who's this guy? He's like, oh, he's pretty good for a guy who dances. And yeah, it was, it was very funny. Flash Funk, when he, though, I didn't realize this was his debut either. Neither did I. Neither did I. When you actually think about it, Survivor Series 1996, very stacked in terms of names and milestones. Uh, you know, we see the first Undertaker in his new sort of um, late 90s guy before he goes to the ministry. We see the Rock debut. And we also see Flash Funk. Samuel Vega, um, also, we forget how big he was back then too. But unfortunately... This match is also very much soured when Howard Finkel announces who is going to be the mystery partner to team up with Savia Vega, Yokozuna, and Flash Funk, and that is Superfly Jimmy Snooker. Oh man! In I, 1996, my notes here. I wrote Flash Funk would probably get over now in 2020. My next note was mystery partner in, is Snooker. That would not be over in 2020. Oh, my God. If you yeah, talk about cringe, just Jimmy Snooker. It's just weird watching him now. It's like, uh, we shouldn't be watching this. No, that was just, it was also just, he looked in, uh, he passed his prime then in 1996. And let's not forget the off field, like how to put the out of the ring indiscretions uh, to, to play PG. But that's what I this mean. This match like, is oh, terrible. Yeah. This match is such a mess, too. It's just <laughs> awful, awful stuff. It gets DQ'd. There's no Soul Survivor. I like <laughs> this. I like this more than the last Survivor Series match because it was shorter. There were no rest holds, but it was an absolute mess. It was guys just tagging and not selling anything. They're like, I'm not just going to come anything. in. I'll do moves. You'll do moves. Then we'll tag. And then they'll do moves. And it, mm. it, yeah, it was just so weird. One of the highlights here is that um, seeing Glenn Jacobs, a.k.a. Kane, as fake Diesel, he actually wrestles much better. You've never seen Diesel wrestle like that in your life. <laughs> but 
as we've seen with the outsiders matches in WCW, Kevin Nash was doing really good stuff on pay-per-view. So like, even though Glenn Jacobs was the better athlete at this point, yeah, you can't touch the real Kevin Nash still. Like he just mm. brought something different. And poor Rick Bogner trying to do the fall away slam. He hits literally the worst fall away slam I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. <laughs> it is not good. Look, what's the good thing about this match, if you do want to watch it for curiosity's sake, mm. it's short. It's very short. So when you've watched, when you've gone to go watch the Austin match, uh, Austin versus Bret Hart, hang around a little bit for Bret 15 minutes afterwards because you can just entertain yourself with this little absolute dumpster fire for a little bit. Have a good laugh and then go home happy. But yeah, an absolute mess. Madison Square Garden, not happy. They just, a chorus of boos when it's announced it's a DQ. Which is a shame. They were into it. They were loving Jimmy Snooker and all the weird Flash (laughs) Funk stuff. They even did an ECW chant when Funk hit the uh, moonsault to the outside. But yeah, and then it just gets thrown out in like eight minutes. What's up next though? I think a really good match. Maybe it's not five stars, but this is a very good main event. And I'm glad it lived up to the hype because I feel like I've mentioned this match quite a bit. And it's good. Starts off with a great video package too. Yeah, it's a very, very intense one. So this is Sid Vicious. Sorry, this is Psycho Sid versus Shawn Michaels. Now, we should point out, Shawn Michaels has been having some phenomenal matches here. And I honestly reckon this is the best Sid match ever in his career. I think so too. It's very good. I can't think of a better one. Because he actually, he's a, it's a David and Goliath kind of match, but Sid looks intense. He is, and so fluid as well. He's a big man, but he move, but it, smooth as butter, this is. Which I is weird Sh- to say about Sid. <laughs> I think Shawn Michaels always liked Sid because they worked together quite a bit. You know, in 95, Sid was his bodyguard. Um, you know, they sort of feuded a little bit there. And then here as well, like, Sean got the best out of Sid, whether they were a team or rivals on screen. Sean, of course, has a reputation for having great matches with big men. And he did the same for Sid here. And the hype of Sid, like we've mentioned, he was so over with this comeback run in WWE that he ends up main eventing the Survivor Series in Madison Square Garden. And it doesn't feel forced. This feels like, yeah, of course, Sid is the man. Very much so. And he gets a massive cheer as well. He comes out in his entrance. He's got a hell of a tan as well. This is like, this is, you know, wrinkly brown leather jacket in someone's ute tan on uh, Sid Vicious. He's got the tan. He's got the hairy chest. He's got the oil. He's got the wet hair. Like Sid is the Mm. ultimate wrestler. He's ripped. He's seven (laughs) foot. He's got blonde hair. Like, yeah, Sid's got all the gimmicks. Um, What I love too Sid, even back here in 96, he's going for fist bumps. But back then, Mm. people didn't do fist bumps as often. And you get the awkward people just grabbing Sid's fist because they're going for a high five. At the end of the match, and I'll actually get to it at the end of the match. Actually, no, I'll bring it up now. There's a bit where a guy sort of like, Sid goes in for like a fist bump, and the guy puts his arm around him and like poses for the (laughs) camera with him. And Sid, rather than like, you know, shake off the punter, actually gets into it too. Yeah, Sid was a weird one because he was a face up to this match. He kind of turns heel here, but he still plays to the crowd and gives everyone a high five. This is a controversial take because they're both existing at the same time. But Sid is almost the prototype stone cold face. He has a leather jacket. 
He's a bad yep. guy, but the crowd likes him. Yeah, it's a little bit in there. Yeah, there is there is black just that space. The black trunks, yeah, yeah. It's all it all comes together just that little bit. He's taller than Austin, so it's if, almost as if <laughs> if Sid hung around in '97 and made it through '98 in the WWE, I think Sid versus Austin would have been huge. Would have been money. It yeah. would have been absolute money there. But look, this this match I've got it written down here. '96, Sean, best wrestler in the world, no questions. Oh man, he is so confident in his abilities. He starts this match against Sid with chain wrestling. He's like, yeah, we're going to do headlock takeovers. We're going to run the ropes. And he gets it out of Sid because Shawn Michaels in 96 is untouchable. And, and credit to Sid, though. Sid does a kick up, kick, kick up out of a headlock, like going back and forth with Shawn. It's really fun. I was about to say, yeah, because Sid has bought his work. And just, this is the best Sid Vicious match. He's not plotting. You know, like you look, you look at a lot of um, old w, WCW matches or even when he's Sid Justice, there's a lot of like, he's slow. Because I guess that's how he, when he was, when you're that big, you're meant to do that slow, intimidating kind of, yeah. But here, he actually looks like he's moving in fast forward to keep up with Sean because... Hmm. Sean sort of does the little, like, you know, try and chop the big tree down. But in this case, Sid actually keeps up with him, hangs with him, and he's very much on par. To the point that this match is so good, it is completely ruined by the shenanigans at the end. However, it's all part of the story shenanigans. Like, it adds to it rather than takes away from it, I feel. Yeah, it ends up telling an interesting story that they pay off in a few months, but... At one point, when Sean does try and chop down Sid, he hits a chop block, which you would against the big guy, and the crowd just, that's when they completely turn on Sean. Madison mm. Square Garden is on the fence, but when he does that, they're like, nah, we hate Sean and we love Sid from this point on. They start a huge let's go Sid chance. Yeah, Sid's, At yeah. one point, Sean goes for a cross body. Sid catches him and he gets one of the biggest pops of the night. Yeah. Like, they just hated Sean halfway through this match. I think he made Sid look a little bit too good. Yeah. Yeah, it was so strange. And then at some point, one of the weirdest bits is, so the end of the match happens when Sid gets the, 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 a cameraman's camera. And at first you think, what's going on with the camera? Because he literally gets a live camera and takes it off the cameraman. And then at this point in time, you think he's going to be DQ'd because Earl Hebner is right there. Mm-hmm. And did you notice too how Earl Hebner is doing his absolute best to not look at Sid yeah. while he's got that camera? You knew he knew he was behind him and he was like, come on, Sid, hit someone. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, Sid ends up hitting Jose Lothario, who's been ringside with Sean through all of 96. He was his A father figure. <laughs> A father figure. He hits him in the chest with the force of Crush's heart punch. And poor Jose goes down clutching his heart, you know, and then, yeah, they really, really played into like, oh my God, serious voice is Jose having a heart attack. Um, One of my, crowd my, I actually, I actually wrote down, Sid the, still. I actually wrote down uh, what JR said, uh, Jose with a serious medical, uh, serious medical problems. Like they're, they're not saying what they are, but cause, cause at one point JR says, oh, I hope he didn't have a heart attack. But other than I clearly, I'm guessing someone's probably gone, don't do that. What are you doing? Don't say, don't say that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't say that in case he actually used to have a heart attack. He's having but, medical issues. We better take him to a medical facility, facility in classic yeah. WWE style. <laughs> but yeah, so then you are right. It's almost like, it doesn't get cheered, but it 
it gets acknowledged like, oh, that's smart. Well done. Good, mm-hmm. good work. Take, yeah, yeah. take out take out the old man. <laughs> and then when Sean's tending to him, like at one point the ref gets knocked over, that Sid then picks up the same camera and hits Sean with it and the crowd just mm-hmm. cheers. And Sid plays to the crowd because he then points in the ring like, I should throw him in the ring and pin him. Yeah. And then he does. And the crowd just is like, yeah, good. You outsmarted and- Sean. And that's the weird part after, because afterwards, it's not silent or anything. It's not like, oh, geez, that was... I think I don't think they were expecting that, because the amount of time that Vince repeats, well, anything can happen in the World Wrestling Federation, he says it about three times there. But the crowd actually... It doesn't explode. It doesn't erupt. But it's kind of like a, oh, yeah, we've... Well, yeah, well done, Sid. Good effort. Mm, yeah. Like, it doesn't go mad. It doesn't lose its mind. And but I know you know ex- that... Mm, We'd expect it now in 2020, like, oh, of course, the crowd's kind of cheering the heel when he won the title. But no, back here, that wasn't really a thing. And again, Sid was a face. So the crowd never took it as, oh, he turned heel. Mm. They were like, hey, he beat Sean. We don't like Sean anymore. It was very weird. It's very, very strange there. But like, and the thing is too, that's, it's a stiff powerbomb as well. Oh, we, we mentioned too that, that um, Sean actually does hit sweet chim music during the match, like towards the end, but he's distracted so much by Ooh. Jose on the outside. He goes out to tend to him rather than that, which leads to Sid taking the camera outside and smacking him in the back, dragging him back in power bomb gets the pin. And all of a sudden Sid psycho Sid is your WWF champion. You would not have seen it coming at the start of 96. Even the point we jumped in in June, you wouldn't have thought Shawn Michaels, mm. you know, sort of, Real main event run, his first title run ends with Psycho Sid beating him. But Sid gets that over in such a short time that it makes sense. Great match, highly recommended, better yeah. than anything on World War Three. If we're talking about who won the month month of November '96, yeah. WWE by a walk. And also, fun fact: this is the match you've probably seen the meme of Shawn Michaels <laughs> yeah. standing on his head. This is where yeah. it comes from. So it's cool to see yeah. that in motion too. Yeah, check that out for yourself. It's 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 a solid paper you top to bottom. Even the bad Survivor Series matches or Survivor Series match, they're still good enough or short enough to get you by without having to give this a thumbs down as a paper view. Now, what I thought was really weird too, Sid celebrating with the world title, Vince just basically, they're still selling that it's going to be Brett versus, uh, because we forgot to mention, the Austin versus Bret Hart match was a number one contender mm. match. So the winner of this match gets a shot. Sorry, the winner of that match gets a shot at the champion. And at the next pay-per-view, it is Bret Hart versus Psycho Sid. I have no recollection of that match. I'm looking forward to it, though, because if Sean got a match this good out of Sid, I really want to see Bret versus Sid. I can't remember it, so I'm looking forward to it. I think that's legitimately a pay-per-view I might not have ever seen for whatever reason. Mm. That was one my video easy didn't stock. So that, that should be interesting. It's also the next next month's WWF paper is a strange one as well too because it's called In Your House, It's Time. And you'd assume it's one of the, the Vader theme papers because everyone was having like mind games was the uh, was the Mankind one, Buried Alive, Undertaker. Beware know, of Dog was Bulldog. Mm-hmm. However, Vader's not actually part of... Um, in your house, it's time. And we know, we've, we've discussed about this, you can go into the archives, there was some big plans planned for Vader, but it was that title match against Shawn Michaels that 
pretty much put the kibosh on it. Legend goes that this spot Sid had at Survivor Series was meant to be Vader, a rematch from SummerSlam. Vader wins. Sean beats him at the Royal Rumble. Sid not only took Ultimate Warrior's spot as Sean's <laughs> main event face friend, he then takes Vader's spot as main event heel champion. Sid has, retroactively, Sid has the best six months in the WWF. He rocks yeah. up and takes two main event spots. Because when you think about big stars of 1996, like who would be, who would at the end of the year be a world champion? If you go back to middle of the year, June 1996, and be like, Vader is in the WWF at the moment. Warrior has just made his comeback. He's back in the WWF. Mark Merrow's getting the push of a lifetime. Yeah. yeah. And Psycho Sid's there as well. If you said, at that point in time, oh yeah, so I reckon out of those guys, Sid's the one that's going to be champion come November, heading into the final baby of the year. You'd be like, yeah, right, mate. What are you smoking? <laughs> yeah, it's... but but watching it back, we've realised it makes perfect sense. Mm. When yeah. Sid said, "Who's the man?" and Sid is the it's... real answer. It certainly is. He's definitely the MVP of that. But uh, look, it's a solid pay per view. But let's get into it. What did you think was the MVP? Who was the person that stood out? throughout that paper for you simon i'll give it as a tie brett and austin yeah what a match can't fault that absolutely cannot fault that he's the and the best part too is you know how we often sort of say oh you got to check out king of the ring 1998 because that's where it's got under the hell in a cell match with taker and mankind rest of the show is garbage rest of the show is garbage mm. like every time you get like bash the beach 1996 oh you got to see the main event rest of the show garbage Whereas this one, when people go and tell you, oh, check out, you've got to check out um, Brett versus Austin Summer uh, Survivor Series 1996. Great match, and the rest of the pay-per-view is good too. Yeah, the triple main event stacks up with, yeah, Sid and Sean, Brett and Austin, and Taker and Mankind, and the Survivor Series matches have enough weird curiosities or historical importance with debuts and whatnot to watch it. And it's in Madison Square Garden, so the vibe is big time. This is a great show. One of the best. Yeah, definitely. Check that out for yourself. But uh, look, next, t- next time round, it is WWF in your house. It's time. Um, Shawn Michaels, not Shawn Michaels, sorry. Psycho Sid defends the WWF championship against, against Bret Hart. It's going to be a rather epic one, Simon. That'll be a good one for you. But since, well, there's two good things about the next pay-per-view. It's a two-hour one because it's an in-your-house, so it'll be done and dusted like quicker than an episode of Raw, and it'll be a fresh match for you too. Yeah, it's going to be weird. This won't be reliving. This might be just living its living. time for the first time. <laughs> so that should be good. I'm looking forward to it. I love the WWF shows, and I also love the WCW shows for their just wackiness. And we've got mm. the granddaddy of them all coming up next. It's Starcade for WCW with... An interesting main event that I think is better than people would expect on paper. It's Hogan versus Piper. I'm looking forward to Starcade up next. That is going to be really good to see too. 1996 so far has been an absolute bumper year of wrestling, both WWF and WCW. You can catch all of them in our archives. I know we've had a couple of people say that they've been reliving 1996 throughout the network. So we thank you for doing that. But uh, hey, Simon, this has been probably one of the most fun pay-per-views to watch. Looking forward to Starcade 1996. 
as we normally do with our WCW ones, I think we need to enlist a third man too. And I think we probably know who that's going to be. Yeah, we're going to need another guest for this one. We might, uh, you know, dip into the uh, maybe, maybe our usual suspects for this, but Mm -hmm. it's going to be a big one. The granddaddy of them all, as WCW said first before (laughs) WWE stole it for WrestleMania. Exactly. It was the super show of wrestling uh, two years before WrestleMania, but (laughs) hey, look, I guess the the victors write the uh, the history, but uh, Simon, that was a lot of fun, man. If you want to follow Simon, you can do that on Twitter at Simon Tackler. You can follow me on Twitter at Doc Nims. Make sure you follow Grey Wolf Wrestling on all the social medias: Grey Wolf Ent, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. As Simon said, we got Starcade, the granddaddy of it all. That is coming up next on Reliving the War. This has been another presentation from the Grey Wolf Entertainment Network, greywolfentertainment.net.